When you were a young kid, did your mom ever do anything to you that embarrassed you in front of your friends? You know, like licking her finger and using it to stick your hair down just before you went on stage at the Christmas concert. We probably all have stories. Mine was set at the local fall fair. Rodney Fair was a big deal in my childhood. The exhibit hall, the special events, and best of all, the midway that came to us once a year for two days. It was so exciting. The chance to win an impossibly big stuffed giraffe, or the sticky cotton candy, or the rides. I mentioned the rides last because being as risk-averse as I am, I didn't really like them. I did like the merry-go-round, but after a certain age, there was peer pressure to be more adventuresome. So one fateful year, I told my mom I wanted to try the scrambler. You know, the one with horizontal arms that go up and down as they rotate around, and on the end of each arm, a few carriages that would spin. She was happy to see me trying something new, but knew I was nervous, so she co-opted my brother to ride with me. My brother, who was two years older and definitely too cool to be seen on that kiddie's ride. But it got worse. My mom stood anxiously at the fence around the ride, watching me. She could see I was scared, really scared, so... You guessed it. She made the carney stop the ride and got me off. So embarrassing. And my poor brother. It seemed terrible at the time. But over the years, as life became more hectic and adult responsibilities piled on, I came to a place where I sort of wished that someone would stop the carnival ride of my life so I could step off and find some quiet. Do you have days where you wish that might happen? Today we're going to look at a couple of people who managed to dwell in that quiet. We're continuing our Advent series, encountering some of the central characters in the Christmas story. And this morning we are back in Luke's biography of Jesus. The shepherds have left And a few days later, Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate him. That's where we'll pick up the story. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said 
to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon and Anna, two characters in the Christmas story that we seldom hear about. I'd be pretty confident that none of the Christmas cards you may have received in the last few weeks feature either of them. There may be some reasons for that, But before we dig into their details, let's look at the larger story that Luke is telling, the meta-narrative of his biography, if you like. You see, Luke is not just like a newspaper reporter getting all the names, facts, and events down in the right sequence. He's got a bigger story that he's telling. To be fair, that may also be true of a newspaper reporter whose bigger story may be evident when he reports on controversial topics like homelessness, Donald Trump, or the war in Gaza. But for Luke, the point is that bigger story, a bigger story of God entering time and space to bring salvation. I'm guessing Luke would have done well in kindergarten because he not only tells his readers about Jesus' ministry and the kingdom he is bringing, he shows what that kingdom is like by the people he profiles and the episodes he includes in his biography. We've already talked about the outsiders that Luke gives center stage to in his narrative. Mary as far as we know, a humble peasant girl. Elizabeth, the priest's wife who was barren and therefore, it was thought, must have somehow displeased God. And I do love that Luke gives so much airtime to those women. In contrast, Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, is is struck speechless and Joseph is barely mentioned. Clearly, Luke has an agenda to make it evident that there is a place for women in this thing that Jesus is starting. Then last week, we talked about the royal birth announcement being given to a bunch of motley peasants, shepherds, uneducated, low status, and probably ritually unclean, the ultimate outsiders. This week, his story focuses on two recluses, Simeon and Anna who are by no means part of the religious hierarchy, even though they seem to have somehow gained priority access to the divine plan of redemption. And and we're given a message, a prophecy, that Jesus' coming means those of high status will fall and those of low status will be raised up. And, as if the gates weren't already open wide enough, 
Simeon makes it clear that the birth of Jesus means good news for the Gentiles. Light will be coming to them from this Jewish Messiah. Luke seems to be driving home the point that no matter why you might think that you are outside of God's favor, this kingdom is for you. Another theme in these Christmas stories that Luke tells, as Luke tells them, is the debunking of individualism. The story of the individual hero is so potent in our culture, perhaps influenced by our neighbors to the south. Think of the image of the Lone Ranger. We see it in films, for sure. John Wayne made a career out of it. And in sport, in American football, it's not the Chiefs versus the Broncos, it's Patrick Mahomes versus Russell Wilson. Never mind that they are individual players in teams of 50 or more men and supported by that many or more coaching and training staff. The myth is that one individual on their own can determine the outcome of the game. But Luke doesn't endorse that myth as he tells his story. He makes it clear that even the most blessed and prominent individuals in his story need community support. Two weeks ago, we heard Mary's announcement that henceforth all generations would call her blessed. But that doesn't mean she didn't need community around her. She needed it so much that she traveled to her cousin Elizabeth and stayed with her for months. Then, when the shepherds confirmed the miraculous nature of her newborn with their story of angelic messengers, she clung to that encouragement and cherished it in her heart. In today's story, she gets further confirmation. She was pretty sure that she had heard and understood what Gabriel had said to her, but she also wanted and needed the support of community around her as she walked this unprecedented path. The shepherds themselves receive the message as a community. In the Hebrew scriptures, messages from God are almost exclusively given to individuals. Think Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, and then the prophets. In the book of Jeremiah, the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, or the word came to Jeremiah, appears more than 20 times. A message for the people, but a message that was given to an individual who was the only one who heard it and had the painful job of trying to share it with a broader audience. But on that quiet night in the Bethlehem countryside, the word from God came to a group, a group who could together share both the delight and the weightiness of the message. And in today's story, three individuals who were each carrying the burden of news that was both wonderful and dangerous, all collide in the temple. I imagine Mary, as Simeon lifts the baby from her arms and prophesies over him, saying, Wait, what? You too? You also know this baby will be Messiah? And then Anna comes and joins them at that moment, as Luke records it, and she is startled too. What? You too, too? You also are in on God's plan to redeem Israel? 
Yeah, Luke is telling the events that happened around Jesus' birth, but he is also painting a beautiful picture of Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom that is wildly inclusive, and a kingdom that is rooted not in Lone Ranger spirituality, but in community. Simeon and Anna are part of that picture that Luke is painting, but they're also interesting in their own right. So let's dig a little deeper. Simeon does not appear to have been part of the religious establishment. He came to the temple that day not because it was his regular practice, but because the Spirit had told him, prompted him, to go at that particular time. But while he may not have been a priest or part of a religious order, he was a man deeply devoted to God, absorbed in listening to and listening for God. And that listening was rewarded. He was given a promise that he would not die before he would see the Lord's Messiah. When he sees the infant Jesus, this quiet man bursts into speech. He essentially says, I can die happy now because I've seen God's salvation. Salvation that is huge in its depth and also its breadth. This Jewish Messiah would be light to lighten even the Gentiles. That was the kind of insight that his life spent in quiet contemplation of God led him to. And then there is Anna, married early but also widowed early, probably by the age of 21 or 22. Then, Decade after decade after decade of life alone. It isn't clear whether she had kids or an extended family to embrace her, but we are told that she spent her days and nights fasting and praying in the temple. Some recognized her as a prophet, and that was rare for a woman. Miriam and Deborah are the only other female prophets identified in the Bible. But many may just have thought of her as a bit of a kook, an eccentric old woman muttering to herself. Probably why she doesn't make it onto many Christmas cards. And yet Luke includes these two, Simeon and Anna, in his story. In one sense, they can sort of be seen as the patron saints of Advent, because Advent is a season of waiting And they both spent time waiting. They spent decades waiting. And they understood the benefits of waiting, not not waiting for something specific, like a kid waiting for Christmas morning or me waiting for a traffic light to change, but an open-ended waiting on God, waiting on God's presence, God's perspective, God's word. According to Henry Nouwen, time spent waiting on God is never wasted. He says waiting time is not wasting time. Waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. Even secular medical science recognizes the benefit of stepping off the hamster wheel of anxious thoughts and pressured obligations. Practices such as meditation 
and mindfulness that physicians at one time would have seen as flaky and new-agey are now regularly prescribed to patients as part of the treatment for conditions such as anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, and insomnia. But Nowen says that those who quiet the mental chatter and actively and expectantly wait on God get more than just tangible health benefits. He says that the practice of waiting becomes the foundation of the spiritual life. It roots us in the realities of God's love for us and God's work in and through us. Realities that it is so easy to lose track of when we're sucked into the rat race. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes that redirected gaze away from temporal demands and onto spiritual realities. He says, So we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner, na- inner nature is being renewed day by day. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. I've told you before about a friend of mine, an elderly woman who, as the circle of her social life narrowed through death and distance, was spending more and more time alone in prayer more time just sitting with and waiting on God. She told me that sometimes the spiritual realities she was contemplating were so real to her that she had to pinch herself to remind herself that she was still in a body. I suspect that few, if any of us, are there yet. But all of us can begin the path to get there. A path where prayer is less about telling God what God ought to do and more about listening to what God is already doing and desiring. As we spend time in contemplative prayer, we can root ourselves in that love and identity and purpose. And it is that perspective that we carry with us when we go back to our busy lives. The American pastor and author Brian Zond has pursued a much more contemplative path in the second half of his life. He describes being contemplative as the opposite of being reactive. I find that very helpful. When we are reactive, our lives are held hostage to the latest anxious thought that is top of mind. But when we become contemplative, I think there are two benefits. The very discipline of contemplation over time dials back our hair trigger. We become more able to think and process rather than instantly reacting to negative things that happen. And the wisdom and perspective that we have gained in our time of contemplation creates context for us. Context that allows us to interpret our experiences differently and to respond differently. I appreciate that many of you are in a very busy season of life, particularly those of you with young children. I can imagine you thinking, that's easy for you, Jan. You're retired and have no one to take care of but yourself. Fair enough. 
And even so, I can find it hard to turn off the devices and turn my heart toward God. It isn't easy, and it's particularly not easy at this time of year that can be so hectic, emotional, and laden with expectations. Contemplative prayer is seriously countercultural when our devices constantly ping to distract our attention, tell us news we didn't want to hear, and shove endless advertisements across our screens. The practice of Advent, though, invites us into a season of contemplation, a season of waiting and hoping and listening, into an oasis of quiet in a cacophonous world. In Advent, Jesus comes to those who, like Mary, are willing to receive him. He comes to those who, like the shepherds, find the courage to step from darkness into light. And he comes to those who, in the midst of a noisy and chaotic world, step into the quiet and listen. May Jesus come to our hearts this Advent.